0: Welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's Sermon Podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. Okay, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me over to Acts chapter 6 as we continue on in our story, the series here, the people of God. And we're going through the book of Acts together. And we'll also go through some of the letters and just kind of learn what is what was it like for that early church And what can we learn from them of who we are to be today in the world? And we're at a very important chapter in Acts, Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read for us this short chapter. It's only 15 verses long. And then I'm going to skip uh, most of chapter 7 and just read right at the end what happens to Stephen as we learn about Stephen's story today. And so this is uh, Acts 6, beginning in verse 1. It says this. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Will this proposal please the whole group? And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Permanus, and Nicholas from Antioch. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread and And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Asia. They began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And they secretly then persuaded some men to say that we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the teacher of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified that this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin look intently at Stephen, but they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7 then goes on. Stephen responds to these things by giving them a great sermon. And uh, he talks first about Abraham, and then he goes on to talk about Moses, but how the people were disobedient to God and resisting of the Holy Spirit. And and then it goes all the way down to where I want to pick up next, beginning in verse 51, the very end of his sermon here. In chapter 7, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. For was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, and they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees, and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. So today, I want to spend just a minute talking about Stephen here. He was the first one who was chosen to be a deacon. He was full of faith, and and he served, and God did miracles in his life, and he uh, daringly spoke about Christ, and, and opposition arose. We read here that they dragged him before the Sanhedrin, the courts. The crowds wanted him dead like they wanted Jesus dead. But Stephen kept preaching to a crowd that hated him. And when they threatened him, they even picked up stones to kill him. Stephen didn't run. He looked up and he saw into heaven. He saw the Lord standing there beside the Father, looking down at him, and it gave him great courage and comfort. He was not alone. And he even prayed that Jesus would... uh, Uh, He prayed a similar prayer that Jesus did from the cross, that the Lord would forgive these people who were killing him. He showed great faith and love and courage in the face of persecution and death. And he was the first person to die for Christ. And I think of how many of our people, Christians, have had to face what Stephen faced, martyrdom. Thousands and thousands have over the years in many different countries and times. We've heard some of their stories, but so many of them, we don't know their names. But they were willing to give their life for Jesus, living for eternity rather than now. But Stephen's death for Jesus wasn't just inspiring, but it also became the catalyst for going out and spreading the gospel to all of the world. For many people believe that the church at that time had gotten stuck. It had gotten comfortable where it was in Jerusalem. And so it hadn't gone out of the city. It hadn't gone out into all of the world like Jesus had told them to do. It was kind of stuck in a rut, you could say, in Jerusalem until that Stephen moment. When Stephen spoke up boldly for Christ and was killed for his faith, it tells us that a persecution broke out against the church. And that is when it tells us that the church was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, like it was always supposed to be. So you could say in this that God used for good that which was a very painful moment. He used the death of Stephen to wake up and motivate and move his people outward, scattering them, bringing the gospel message to other places. God didn't cause the death of Stephen, but he most definitely used it for good and his glory. And it's so interesting to me at times, the different circumstances that move us to exactly where we're supposed to be. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think of the Old Testament story of Joseph. Joseph was one of 12 brothers and his brothers hated him because he was the favored child of his father. They hated him so much that we read in Genesis, they beat their brother up, they threw him into a pit and they sold him as a slave to Egypt where Joseph eventually ended up in prison for many years, having done nothing. All because his brothers hated him. But the Bible says that God was with Joseph when he went to Egypt as a slave, and he was with Joseph even in the darkness of that prison. God never abandoned Joseph, just like he never abandons us. He is the light in dark places when all other lights go out. There's always hope when there is God. And we see that. For at just the right time, God does a miracle in Joseph's life. He causes Pharaoh to need him. And when Joseph was able to do what no one else could do, Pharaoh put him in charge. In a way, God raised Joseph from this place of slavery and prison to the second highest person in all of Egypt, giving him authority, putting him in charge of the distribution of food. And just about that time, a great famine broke out in all of the land. And Joseph's family back in Israel became in need. And so they traveled to Egypt because they heard there was food there. And when they did, they discovered their long lost brother, who they had abandoned, was not only alive, but now in a position of authority to save them. They were afraid. But instead of revenge, Joseph showed mercy on his brother because... He could see that what they intended for evil, God used for good. For he was exactly where he was always supposed to be. In a similar way, the stoning of Stephen was a very sad and troubling thing and scary at that time in the early church. A good, godly man died that day. But God used this persecution to strengthen and spread out his church to bring salvation to many, penny people in many, many different lands. And I just want to say, I am often blown away by the paths that God uses, by the events or the circumstances in our life that man at the time can seem scary, that can seem evil, that can seem troubling, and maybe in a way they are. But God uses them to lead us exactly where we're supposed to be. It becomes the spark that ignites something where God can do amazing things. The path that we may envision for our life going one way compared to the one God takes us down. And only later can we really see how everything has worked together for his will and his purposes and our good. We therefore should never give up hope or be discouraged even the way things may be at a moment For the lord is good and amazing and sovereign and he's going to take us Exactly where he wants us to be in this we can trust him Now there are three things from this story that I really wanted to mention today in our scripture The first one is this that our scripture opens in act six by telling us the church is growing and certain areas of ministry are being overlooked because the disciples just didn't have the time to get to them. There's only 12 of them, and the work was too much. It tells us here that the Greek Jews complained because their widows weren't getting food. And so you see, back then, you had these 12 superstars, these 12 apostles who were doing it all. But at one point here, they realize we can't do it all. We can't feed everybody And continue on discipling and teaching and evangelizing. The church was growing to a point where it was going to need other people to help. And so they admit this in verse 2. They say it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on the tables. We need help. Choose seven among you, they say, who are known full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And we're going to turn over this responsibility of caring for the widows and other things to them. So that we can continue on with the ministry of prayer and preaching the word. And so seven people were chosen to be deacons, and Stephen was the first. And again, this is another turning point in the church. For if the church was going to keep growing, others were going to have to step up and lead. It had to be more than the 12 doing everything. And we read this in the letters of the New Testament, that this is how the church then continued to operate, that everybody had a part to play. In Romans 12, it tells us we all are the body of Christ, and the body has many members, and these members don't all have the same function, but they're all needed. It says we each have different gifts according to the grace that God has given to us. Some have the gift of preaching, others serving, others teaching, others encouragement, others giving, others leadership, and others mercy. And it tells us in Romans 12 that we're all to use our gifts to serve the body. That is what the Bible teaches, that each church has what it needs if everyone shares and does the work. Today, if we're not careful, we can look at church as it was never meant to be, to meet our needs instead of look for a church where we're there to help meet its. We are all called by Jesus to serve Jesus. I've heard a number of times people say, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. But that's missing the whole point of what church really is. Church is the people of God of which we belong. It's the gathering of believers for worship, encouragement, prayer, teaching of the word, and caring for those in need, and spreading the gospel, discipleship. And we are all supposed to care about that. Not just a few who get paid for it, but all of us. To truly be a part of a church is to be helping with the work of the church. There's a great scripture about Moses in the Old Testament where he was acting as a judge for all of the Israelites as they came out of Egypt and thousands and thousands of Israelites and just one Moses. And one day, his father in law came to visit him, and he saw all that Moses was doing from sun up to sundown, just person after person coming to Moses for help, making a judgment about a particular circumstance. And by the end of the day, Moses' father in law pulled his son aside and said, What you are doing is not right. You're just one man. You can't keep this up. You need to ask for help. There are plenty of good people out there who could share the the load. And so ask some of these able men, he said, to assist you. Put each one in charge of 50 and spread out the load so it doesn't fall just on you. And thankfully, Moses listened to the wisdom of his father-in-law. And the result was that he didn't burn out. And more people were helped than if he had just been doing it by himself. And this is the biblical way of church. That we don't hold on to power. That we don't think that we're somehow greater than others. But that we release and turn over responsibilities to other capable godly people. So that the work of God can grow beyond us. Paul told Timothy, I want you to train up other godly men and women to disciple more people. And this is what we see in scripture. The apostles are now raising up deacons. And it says in verse 7, the result was that the number of disciples grew rapidly. The work of God became more fruitful When we all share in it together. Our ministry and our life is better if we learn how to share the work and even share the leadership. Maybe listening to new ideas that new people bring and training up others to care for others. And if I look back, I tell you, in my life, this is when I grew the most, is when I served. This is when when I was asked to serve there in high school and then also in college and help out. That's when I learned who I was in Jesus Christ and that God could use me. And when I was able to see God more experienced in, in the things that he was doing in my life is when I got involved. I love how the people here, you know, they complain that their widows aren't being looked after. But it's so cool here, the disciples They don't get defensive, nor do they try to do more to the neglect of other things. They turn the complaint around. They turn it back on the people who made it. And they said, we see that. Can you help out? Choose amongst yourselves seven who are capable. And maybe, maybe the things that you see that aren't being done, that could be done, Maybe it's not for someone else to do. Maybe God is laying it on your heart, opening your eyes, because it's something He wants you to do, to step up and accept and say, you know what, that's the way I can serve in this place. The second thing I wanted to point out, though, what the Bible tells us about Stephen here is his character. It tells us that Stephen was the first one chosen as deacon, and it was because he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. It tells us in verse 8 that he was also full of God's grace and wisdom. I mean, what a testimony. What a testimony of his life. I've been spending lots of time these days with the Warners and the Hernandez families. uh, for uh, They both have people, Earlene and Leo, who have been facing their last days. And, and so as we've gathered together and thought of these two wonderful people, Erlene and Leo, stories and memories have been shared. And boy, I love to hear the stories. I have always loved stories, the good, the bad, the ugly and beautiful and funny parts of all of our lives. And I love to see the love <clears throat> that other people have for their grandma or their wife or their husband or their dad and how they talk about them, what they meant to them. Right, what their friends and family saw in them—it's always encouraging to me, you know, to hear of the stories. Well, for Erlene I had heard multiple people tell me over these weeks of her ability to make everyone feel welcome. You know, she had a forgiveness about her. She had kind words, compliments, grace that just seemed to be her character, and I loved how her great granddaughter Brooklyn said it. She said, Grandma would, would want to see all of my gymnastics moves. And so I would show her them. And then she would make me feel special. It might just be a back bend," she said. But you would think I did something amazing because she would tell me how good I was at it. And then she would also tell me how beautiful I was. And I believed her. This is the character. Uh, how God used her lean. And I, I saw it too. I tell you, every time I went to see Earlene in the hospital, a nurse would inevitably walk in at some point to check on her and her blood pressure or whatever. And I kid you not, every time Earlene would say, you do such a good job. And these nurses would melt a different one every time. She gave them a heartfelt compliment for just doing their job instead of a complaint, which I'm sure they heard much of throughout their days. Earlene just told them how good they were. And she did the same thing to me as she left church every Sunday. Or if I would come over to her house, so many compliments and thoughtful ones, and she would ask me about my daughter or my son and a prayer request. And, And the next time I would go see her, it could be even months later, she had remembered that. And she had been praying for that. And she would ask me how they're doing. For Leo, It was his servant's heart that I kept noticing and seeing that I admired so much. He was a deacon here. He served everywhere, literally always serving. He taught our third through fifth grade Sunday school class, and he prayed for all of those kids by name every week. He was delivering our backpacks each week, helping pass out bulletins, prepare communion, set up tables for July 4th, and he didn't just serve, but in our community, he served with his neighbors. He served... On a town board, he served with his kids and his grandkids. He was a loved man. Character. It's who we are. The deacons were picked because of their character not their flashy whatevers or their talents. They were men full of the spirit and wisdom. Stephen was known for showing God's grace, also faith. People knew him in the community, and that's why they said, we choose Stephen. Now, if you're like me, I always feel my character could improve. A week doesn't go by where I don't wish I had done it better, that I don't see my sin or know, uh, you know, how I have fallen short. And I know that Erlene and Leo would say the same. Uh, Leo and I often talked about how much grace and mercy the Lord has given us, for we often fall short. But very often, Leo would also encourage me and others to not focus so much on that but on the goodness of God and on the love of God. Not just on our failures, but on His love. For that is our motivator and where we find hope. It is the Holy Spirit and His work within us that transforms our lowly characters more into the image of His Son. He makes us more loving, more patient, more like Jesus. Character. The character of Christ comes out of our relationship with Christ and time spent with Him. If you want to see changes in your heart and character, spend time with Jesus and let him rub off on you, and he will. He did unto Stephen. And then the third and the last thing I want to mention here of this scripture is the reality of persecution and how Stephen showed us how to face it. The church back then, we got to remember this, was daily being persecuted for following Christ for believing in Christ, for telling people about Christ. It was just a reality for them, not a surprise. Something that they were willing to endure because they loved Jesus more. I mean, the apostles had already been brought before the Sanhedrin twice, thrown into jail twice, been flogged and rejected, but left rejoicing for being counted worthy for suffering for the Lord. This was their mindset. They expected suffering and persecution. Well, what we see in Acts 6 through 8 is that suffering and persecution is now spreading beyond just the apostles to all of the followers. They all now are going to realize they're going to have to face it. And Stephen was the first. Stephen has people spreading false things about him. Has that ever happened to you? Stephen, you know, has a crowd that rises up against him. Verse 9 says opposition arose. He's having to defend his faith In verse 10, have you ever had to defend your faith? You know, we're told here that the Spirit gave him wisdom of what to say in that moment. They seize him in verse 12. But even in this, it tells us in verse 15 that after, you know, bringing him here before the Sanhedrin, they look upon his face and they see the face of an angel. In other words, Stephen rose to that moment. He's reflecting the Lord, even though he's being mistreated. He's got this eternal view about him. He knows this isn't about him. His life is with and for Jesus. And as they persecuted Jesus, they would persecute him. And so he isn't focused on himself. He's focused on Christ and sharing Christ and representing the Lord as best he can in that moment. Whatever happens, he doesn't even appear to be afraid here. He can see right into heaven. He sees Jesus there and he knows it's going to be okay. He rises to the moment, and it makes him bold. He preaches to the crowd that's ready to stone him. He starts talking about Abraham, then he talks about Moses, and then he shares how the people have always doubted God, but how God remained faithful to them in his promises, and he sent to him his only son to save us, but how he murdered him. Stephen tells them that they're a stiff-necked people, hard-headed, always resisting the Holy Spirit. He tells them they have uncircumcised hearts, which means that they're outwardly religious, but inwardly far from God. Proud, unbelieving, and disobedient. Stephen is not being mean. He's being honest. He's speaking truth in the face of persecution. Not mean-spirited, but holy-spirited. Billy Graham once said that courage is contagious. Whenever a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. Well, when the Sanhedrin heard him, they didn't turn to the Lord and be saved, as we would hope. But they continued to harden their heart to Christ. And they gnashed their teeth at Stephen. And they covered their ears. And they rushed towards him and began to stone him in the street. But what strikes me most about Stephen isn't his courage to face that, though he had that. But what's most profound to me as I read this is his peace in that moment and his love. He's like Jesus on the cross in that moment. Stephen is praying, Lord, receive my spirit and Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen faced death like Jesus surrendered to the will of god for his life jesus told us in matthew 544 love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and stephen did this all the way up until his final breath he was the first christian martyr he didn't go out swinging but willingly with truth and love and prayers for his enemies he didn't wish them harm but hoped that maybe one day they too would see what he sees And what's so amazing in this story is that Stephen's prayer was answered. For we read in 758 that the crowd laid their coats at a young man named Saul. And in verse 8-1, it says, Saul approved the killing of Stephen. So the very guy who gave the orders to have Stephen killed was a man we're told here was named Saul. Who we also read in chapter 8, verse 3, begins to go from house to house, dragging both men and women out and putting them into prison. Saul was the enemy of the church. He was the worst of the worst back then, you could say. He was the one who ordered Stephen to be killed and went house to house pulling out Christians. But the miracle is that the very next chapter in the Bible we read that God would open the eyes and the heart of this Saul. We will look at it another time, but today I just wanted to mention it, that Christ came and appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, and Saul believed in him and eventually became Paul, the greatest evangelist of the early church. Saul is Paul the apostle, and the writer of most of the New Testament. But at this moment in his young life, he was on the wrong side. He was ordering the death of the very first Christian. But we read in Acts 22 that Paul, as he's sharing his testimony and his life of coming to Christ, he mentions this moment, the stoning of Stephen. He never forgot it. We never know who we're praying for and what God's going to do. Whoever seems the furthest away today might be the closest tomorrow. We never know who's watching or how the Lord is going to change a heart. Stephen prayed as he died for Christ. And Saul became the answer to his prayer. The very one who took his life. Now, today, are both brothers in heaven. This is what God can do. There are so many stories like this in history of the World War II Japanese guard who was so nasty to the U.S. soldier. And then the soldier came to Christ, forgave him and witnessed to him. And the very guard who was the worst came to faith in Jesus and they both became the unlikeliest of friends. Or I think of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, missionaries to Ecuador. Jim was killed by the very people he was trying to save. But after his death, his wife continued the ministry. She stayed behind and continued to minister to the people only to one day see her husband's killer come to faith in Christ and they too became the most unlikely of friends. This is what God can do. The very guy who ordered Stephen's death would go on to become a martyr for Jesus himself and the greatest evangelist of the grace of God who saves a wretch like me. This is what God can do. So we cannot let our circumstances make our heart grow cold. Never can we ever give up hope or prayers for people. Never letting the persecution get us discouraged or hating or despairing, but keeping speaking the truth in love, praying for those who persecute you, because a miracle is coming. Keep doing what Stephen does. Keep looking up and God will show you right into heaven. You know, chances are most or even all of us won't have a physically to give up our life for Christ like Stephen and Paul and Jim Elliot did. But the word martyr is actually the Greek word which means witness. And we all are called by Jesus to be a witness. We're all called by Jesus to share and love and speak about what He has done for us, willing to lay down our life for Him, be mistreated, stand alone in a crowd, forgive others, serve Him, maybe give up some comforts. Are we willing to give our life for Jesus, to be a witness for Him? The early church loved Jesus so much. They were willing to face this every day. I end with the words of 2 Corinthians 4, which I remind us are written by this Saul turned to Paul and how grace has been working in his life. He says, It is because of God's mercy we have this ministry, so we don't lose heart. On the contrary, we set forth the truth plainly, knowing that even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. For the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers, so they cannot see the truth of the gospel in the glory of Christ. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. For we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus might also be revealed in us. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life might be revealed in us. Therefore, we don't lose heart. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To stay up to date with all of Bethlehem Covenant Church's information and events, head to bccwaverly.org.